From the Bartlett Center for Advanced Spatial Analysis at UCL, you're listening to Global Lab. Home, where our fully automated, gleaming 21st century house of the future lies waiting silently for us. You can never return home, but you can shop there, you can eat there, and you can wait for your digital servants to cater to your every whim. This episode, Kaiser Pustinen will explain how your living room can help to weed out replicants and other deceitful androids. And Michael Hebert is going to tell us about how the 20th century imagined the future of houses. But first, we're going to hear from Imperial College London's Peter Childs, who will tell us how smart homes can not only save your energy, but your fridge might be able to nudge you towards a slightly more healthy kind of behaviour. Humans are social, and that inevitably means connectivity. By me living in a certain location, it might mean that we need roads to that location. Probably means we need communications, ranging from roads to electricity to water to sewage. So we know of old, the the notion of connected homes is nothing new. The, The moment you have a few homes probably means you're going to have visitors, probably means you're going to have traffic. And so, although the term connected homes may be quite a modern term, I think it stems back a long, long way you know, to, our, to the very human condition of being a, a social being and interlinking with each other. And it's all around societal development. Of course, that can now be enabled to higher levels of communication and interaction by some of the modern technologies. And in the modern parlance, perhaps Connected Homes is about leveraging the capabilities of modern technology to help and aid societal development. That's if you're viewing it from a positive perspective. As with any technologies, there'll be pros and cons. Ah, see, I, I, I do have a, a question on that, but maybe I'll come back to that. So um, can you, I mean, can you give me some examples of of, of of the connected home in the modern parlance. That's quite easy in terms of uh, something that everybody will know. We've all seen the adverts and the um, uh, gadget TV type shows where you can use your smartphone to turn devices on and off to prepare your home for you to come up to, for you to get home. Make sure the curtains are in the right position. Um, make sure it's the right temperature for you. Things like that are already within our grasp. If you, um, one of the one of the issues and challenges which seems to be emerging now is, um, say, in some countries where it's very hot, you may have pets. Some pets get very uncomfortable if it's very hot. Do you leave your air conditioning on all day for your pets, even when you're not at home? Well. Anybody involved in eco-tech and sustainability might question whether that's necessary. You could control that quite readily using your smart device or some clever, um, intelligent control device. Of course, there are alternative solutions, and we're beginning to see those, such as um, uh, pet hutches, which have cooling in them. So when the pet when the dog or cat gets too hot, they can go into their controlled environment. Now, I'm not necessarily promoting technologies like that, but I'm just saying that we're used to 
already the notion of being able to control our home from afar if we so wish, and that's just an example. Mm. So uh, I, I guess um, thinking about that, uh, um, it needn't. When we're talking about the connected home, I think we have an idea of, of something sort of a bit Jetsons-y. And I, I guess what you're saying there is that it, needn't, it, it can be a much smaller intervention than that. We are expecting nearly all of our devices to have um, elements within them which allows them to stream data to communicate to the manufacturer, for example, or some service provider. So your toaster will be able to say, oh, I've been used twice today, um, and therefore I'm 700 uses off a service, mm. <laughs> or the, the need for a service. Or um, our washing machine has been set, um, our washing machine knows that we're coming home at a certain time because it's able to track our, our movements. And so it can then communicate to perhaps to the electricity supplier and the water supplier based upon actual pricing or predicted pricing to optimise when it does its run in terms of use of water and use of electricity to avoid um, the situation where everybody wants a limited resource all at once. And that's known as dynamic, well, the, one of the principles associated with that is known as dynamic pricing. And as a punter, as a customer, you don't want to be paying for something when it's peak price, mm. you, especially for something like uh, the use of a dishwasher or washing machine, when it may not be critical exactly when it's run within a six or eight hour period. You've gone out to work, house is empty for all of that time, it doesn't matter too much when it's run, provided the machine is reliable and doesn't leave a puddle on the floor. Mm. So I guess it, 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 it although... One way of looking at it is like what uh, uh, I mean. I, uh, one could be sceptical about the need for more gadgets, but I guess this, uh, this this sort of use of technology is actually about like more intelligently using resources. Certainly, it's it's a collective intelligence, which can be in the interest of the customer. It could also be in the in the in the interest of the supplier or the service provider, or there could be a societal perspective on it. Um, you know, do we want 10 big power stations mm -hmm. in the UK with them all being used at their optimum condition or should we go for more, which would cost more, and they're then all being used suboptimally? And those, that promotes big questions about um, you know, do we care too much about optimal use and high efficiencies can we tolerate wastage? Mm. And taking a connected approach provides an opportunity to make better use of our resources. It has that potential anyway. Mm. Of course, anything does have its pros and cons. And the moment you go to dynamic pricing, there will inevitably be winners and losers. Mm. Um, because it then comes down to how clever your algorithms are the, the programs which run your devices, um, which the customer probably will not engage in, and it will all be around service provision, and you, you might choose a service provider who's writing those codes on your behalf, and you're buying a service to optimise your use of resources. I've talked very generally there. Um, 
we, we may have 30 or 40 devices in, our ho in, in a small flat, you know, radiator control valves to kitchen gadgets to um, uh, you know, heating and lighting devices, all web-enabled, all Internet of Things type devices, all communicating and streaming data. I don't think anybody would write to, want to sit down and write the control device for that. Customers aren't interested. So instead there may be some home central management system mm. which is provided by some third party and you're looking to that to do the management of those devices for you in terms of optimum energy usage perhaps, optimum life, ensuring they get um, upgraded or replaced before they break. Mm. Um, and if they are going to be upgraded or replaced, perhaps in the modern world where people are people know to take care of our planet and each other, that um, they are there's a, there's an ethic and moral ethics and moral approach to how those devices are extracted from your home and up, up, upgraded and replaced and recycled if, or remanufactured. Mm. Because nobody really wants stuff going straight into landfill when it's got 30% or 50% of its life left. People also don't want to have some clever light fitting which doesn't actually work or a radiator that's full on when you know that it's warm enough in the room already and you want, you want the right temperature for you throughout the room. And then you move to another room and you want it already the right mm -hmm. temperature. A connected home has the potential to manage that on your behalf certainly has the potential. Um, we're going to need to be clever in our business systems in order to do this in a sensible way. Because mm, I, I think you're, as a consumer, one is going to be putting a lot of trust in this management system and a lot of trust in the relationship between, I mean, just, just as a hypothetical example, um, between the energy suppliers and the people who are, who, are, who are producing the algorithms that manage your relationship with how much of that energy you are using, for example. Uh, this is um, uh, quite a long time ago. There's a uh, company that emerged from students from the Royal College of Art and the Imperial called Watson, and it did one of the first energy meters, which sits somewhere in your home and tells you which gadgets are consuming energy, with a view to nudging consumer behaviours. And that, the Watson product, um, they, also called, you know, they, they also called themselves DIY Kyoto. Uh, it was a, uh, a play on, on the big political movement. And, and, but the Watson device has been hugely influential because nearly every, so many companies have copied or emulated some of the ideas associated with that. And now we have dozens of, of energy meters that you, could, you can purchase. You can still buy Watson. But what I'm getting at is that um, you may well have small companies coming up with innovations and I don't I think there is the potential for the home controller which is bound to have to be bespoke to the type of home mm -hmm. um, th to me this is an opportunity for lots of innovators to come up with things which match into almost aspirational living styles mm -hmm. so whilst you may have some big players you know, the huge original equipment manufacturers out there trying to provide things, and no doubt they'll do it well at a good price point. Mm. I think there's also huge scope for innovation out there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I guess what's so interesting about Watson is that's, that's using the technology to 
to put the information in the customer's hands so that the thing that you wouldn't know so that you can make decisions about I think, energy consumption. I think what we've seen with a lot, a lot of the energy meters is that it's exciting for a while and then <laughs> life is busy and people move on and they, you know, they keep their devices and, and maybe it has changed their behaviours to an extent. Mm. But we know the interest level reduces with time in, in, in some interventions like that. And perhaps our, as technology developers, we need to recognise that and find ways to continue to engage our, our clients, our customers in exciting ways, which, which gives them a purpose to engage. Not, not, mm. not as a burden, but as something fun and worthwhile. Mm. Absolutely. And is there, is there anything that that's either on the market now or about to become on the market that you think is a particularly good example of this? Okay, the connected home. So let's just dream into the future a little bit. So you know, we're all used to predictive texting and, and so forth when you've done part of a word and, and the software predicts what, what the rest of the word is and it's quite reliable. And these algorithms are getting more and more sophisticated with increased use of psychology and neuroscience um, and uh, sensation of mood and emotion and it's fun sometimes it goes wrong and that's sometimes part of the fun when it goes wrong what's the next step of course um, we're used to um, products like the emotive headset you know, the EEG <laughs> a series of electrodes on your head which um, measures the sort of movement of 100 million electrons when you um, access a particular um, a, a particular way of thinking or a particular memory, and we're quite good at monitoring that now and calibrating. And one can imagine, um, well, we've already got devices that work like that quite well, and you can control a wheelchair using an EEG headset, and there've been multiple demonstrations of that kind of thing. So you know, you think right. And because it's calibrated and understands that, that movement of a lot of electrons in your subcranial space, that um, you know, the, the uh, wheelchair moves right and stops when you think stop and speeds up and so forth. Will we get to the state where we're thinking about going home and our smart controller gets our home ready for us? Yeah, because so rather than turning on a huge heater, it steadily um, and optimally raises the temperature of the home towards the right level because it's anticipating, based upon our actual thinking, our arrival in you know, an hour and a half's time. Or that thought, I quite like a cup of tea, and my kettle's turned itself on. See, I, I was going to ask you... Um a question that I thought in itself was terrifying, which was, what happens when Google knows what's in my fridge? But what happens when Google knows what I'm thinking about having a cup of tea? <laughs> so the, one of the projects you'll see this afternoon at the show we've just walked away from, the Innovation Design Engineering Global Innovation Design Show. There are about 50 exhibits on there at the moment. One of them is an eye-line fridge. So um, uh, Anthony is the student who's done this eye-line fridge. But it's not just a fridge, a series of contain, refrigerator containers on your eye line. It, 
uh, in your kitchen. I mean, they're beautiful, they're exquisite. The uh, industrial design is wonderful. And, uh, uh, but it has a lighting scheme within it, so it knows that fridge, because of the lighting and vision sensors within the fridge, does know what's in the fridge. And it has a, a couple of algorithms. One is um, uh, it can highlight food which is nearest its best, so that um, uh, some of the food, as you approach the fridge, is illuminated as the food which ought to be used now, rather than... Um, so Anthony's thinking was to reduce wastage. Mm. So if you use what's optimal, um, and the stuff that's still got a few days, you, you, you don't highlight or illuminate in quite the same way. But many of your listeners may have heard of the design principle called nudge, yeah. where you use design thinking and um, technology and, and just you know, clever thinking to guide human behaviours towards an intended outcome. And lots of people use nudge in the business world, political world, design world. And sometimes we object to it, but mm. it can be used like anything for good and bad. Anthony is engaging nudge to try and influence our behaviours. So you may have multiple things in your refrigerator. Uh, can we use nudge and illumination and colour, for example, in order to guide our inf to guide to influence us to select certain things which might be more healthy for us, for example? Mm. Particularly if we've told the refrigeration system that's what we want it to do. So this needn't be about. Um, unconscious control. This can be about deliberate um, settings, saying, I want a healthy week. And you've, you've clunked a switch or you've set a setting to say, yeah, I, I want a healthy week this week. And your refrigerator is nudging you towards <laughs> sensible selections, um, as well as trying to be more sustainable in terms of what you use and when you use it. Next up is Kaiser Pustinen from the Bartlett Centre for Advanced Spatial Analysis at UCL uh, and she'll be talking about how EEG and other psychophysiological measurements uh, can make your home a more emotionally responsive place, as well as weeding out dangerous robots. My name is Kaiser Pustinen and I work at the Centre for Advanced Spatial Analysis and um, recently I've been working uh, with emotions in digital environments. So uh, the reason I've got you in is because I'm interested in this idea of emotion and machines reading emotion and communicating emotion, and especially when in the home. Like, can you imagine a situation in the not-too-distant future where your home can, can read your emotions, can know what you want before you do? Right. Um, I guess so. <laughs> I mean, um, I, I can imagine it, but um, how near future, I, I, I can't answer that. So how would it do it? I mean, how are you sensing people's emotions in the work that you do? Well, we, well a lot of people already use sensors. We, we, we're wearable devices, well, what we call wearable devices, okay. such as Fitbits and so on. But that stuff's more about looking at your... I don't know how active you are, whether you're running up and down, the new, well, the new mood, aren't they? Well, it measures uh, certain kind of uh, physiological measurements, such as heart rate, which is related to how you feel. It's not a clear-cut, uh, simple 
measurement for expressing your emotional state, but uh, it is one of the signals that, that tells how you're feeling. So uh, we have access to technology that allows us to measure um, physiological signals uh, about how we're feeling. So I've seen this word psychophysiological. Is that what that, that means? It yes. Means, so it's, it's, it's like a... A physical man- manifestation of like what sort of emotions can you do you think you can detect with that? Well, um, we have been using uh, mobile EEG measuring headsets, uh, emotive epoch. That's so what's, one of the. What's that doing? So that measures electrical activity from the brain. It's um, oh, okay. it's not a medical device, but we've uh, we've used it quite a bit and have come to the conclusion that it's accurate enough for us to get sort of aggregate level information about uh, people's how emotional how their emotional states change over time Mm. for example we have used them in um, research tasks uh, like when people are walking around a city and we've mapped that um, brain activity data for example with GPS then so that we can see in which parts of London people uh, are more uh, relaxed or frustrated and so on so when you ask what sort of emotional information it can give um, the the sensors themselves, of course, unless it's something like p- purely your pulse rate, that's very straightforward. But then when you start interpreting, uh, let's say, electrical activity from the brain, mm. then the interpretation of actually what that signal means, that's more complex. However... Because without, if, you, if you could do that perfectly, that would be literal mind reading. Right, it would be, yeah, yeah which would be scary. Um, but the but you can't do that. You can just say, no. "Broad is someone annoyed? Are they excited? Sad?" Yes. Yeah, so the um, emotive epoch headset that we've been using, the software that that interprets the signal, uh, it translates it to four different um, emotional states: so excitement, engagement, frustration, and meditation. It doesn't mean that if someone uh, if we measure very high excitement levels, that that would be a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, so there's no balance. So they could be excited in a good way, or in, how can you be excited in a bad way? What if you're stressed or something like that? Yes. Okay. Yes, okay. Yes. So, so, so you could be overwhelmed with. Then you need to be very aware of the context, mm, okay. uh, and and then of course interpret also the results. And so, the context. so using this mobile EEG, what, mm. what other techniques did you say you were using for your work? So we have also measured well, the heart rate and um, electrodermal activity, so how uh, your skin conducts electricity. So, for example, when um, uh, when you get a little bit nervous, uh, the skin gets a little bit sweaty, mm-hmm. and that uh, conducts electricity electricity better um so, so, so that sounds like the sort of old-fashioned lie detector <laughs> technology yeah yeah um once again it really depends how what sort of conclusions you want to draw from that but uh, it is an indication uh, it's not a truth machine but uh, it's an indication <laughs> yeah. how people are feeling yeah um and then, of course, some people, they've been looking at things like pupil dilation, but that's uh, that would be using cameras and so on. That's not really sensor 
readable. But then we have, yeah. So and of so, course body temperature. That's that's one signal. Enough about that. Yeah. So some of the I've seen some of the reports of uh, work you've been involved with in the media, and they describe it as a a version of the Voigt-Kampf test, which right. for our listeners unaware is the test that they use in the movie Blade Runner to mm. tell whether someone's a robot. Mm. So would this does, like is this like a, also double as a Turing test to see whether you're talking to a, a replicant? Yes, and that Voigt-Kampf um, prototype that was developed as part of the project I, I, I was involved in previously that was uh, developed to be a discussion starter. So mm. Not, uh, to to it was for. Developed for a future that could be. So imagine future that could be. And there are a lot of people who are working towards that kind of future where you could be... Where you might um, want to know whether that person is a robot because we've we've built robots plausible or realistic enough to to do that. Um, So I guess we're not quite there yet. So how have you been using this information? Because your project was about digital empathy, right? Right, yeah. We wanted to see if uh, by showing people their own... uh, heart rates and, for example, attention level, whether it would have any difference in how they played an investment game that we um, we were asking them to play. Like on, so they're playing a video game and yeah. you're show, at the same time as they're playing the game, you're showing them these psychophysiological measurements, heart rate. And, yes, yes. Yeah. So they had visual um, primers uh, mm. that showed either heart rates or uh, their attention level. And um, also there was another player, and they we, we also showed at certain points their heart rate or attention level. And mm. then um, the idea of the experiment was to see whether the players of this game, whether they seem to make different kinds of decisions based on the kind, what kind of primer they were seeing at the time. So is this, is this about trust as well as empathy? Yes. Yes, the the game itself it was uh, focusing on really trust, but um, we were most interested in how to uh, prime people to behave in a more empathetic way oh, towards okay. the other player who, who they couldn't see, but they could just see this sort of uh, um, visual uh, signal. From but that's them. the problem, isn't it? People think in person that they're mm-hmm. a good judge of character, that they they can tell if someone is lying or. Mm-hmm being devious, you know, kind of obscuring. Yeah, shift the eyes. And yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, that, that, I mean, there's sort of a, a, a um, language, a body language, isn't mm. there, of tells, people looking away or, you know, covering their mouth when they lie and mm. things like that. <laughs> um, I'm sure good liars never do. But it, digitally, you can't, you know, you've got an email or you've got, a, you know, a, a, an, an online interaction. Maybe you've got a voice if you're lucky. But mm. how do you... How do you um, convey some of that information that people mm. are very good at picking up on. Yeah. Um, so, but it wasn't just an analytical project, was it? You also had a component which was um, as much about communication as about seeing the effects of that communication, I yeah. guess. And so you experimented with different ways of conveying empathy. Could you talk yeah. about that a little bit? Yeah, so that was a... Um, like, well, you can call it data visualisation component of the project... Uh, where we were just creating objects that would convey emotions in some other way than uh, words or you know a spoken word or um, expressions on our on our faces. Yeah. <laughs> so, for example, um, 
we uh, connected the emotive epoch uh, EEG measuring headsets mm -hmm. to um, light that that was um, this sort of Philips just a regular room light okay. and it was connected to the um, CASA office network so that um, the light changed its color according to the EEG headset wearer's mood oh, okay. and and there was, of course, a lot of technical work at the background of it, but uh, the, the this this was a one way of conveying the um, the wearer's uh, mood uh, through other means than just uh, telling someone that you know you're feeling really happy or sad or whatever. Because presumably you're thinking about communicating mood across the internet, but I right. thinking about my uh, 21st century home. Yeah, I'm imagining I could have this in my house. Maybe I'll, I mean I have to wear an EEG headset all the time, which would be annoying. But then you know you could immediately see, you know, if the if the if the lights start getting really really red, it means I'm really <laughs> annoying my wife, and I should probably do do what she says and stop arguing with her. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes that would be handy. Um, I mean, do you, do 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 you find that it's uh, it's been used in in place in the space where the people are, as well as this sort of virtual way to help people. Because there are lots of situations where people aren't picking up on emotional cues or societal cues or body language cues. Yeah. When someone's getting annoyed or upset. Yeah, yeah. There's um, quite a bit of work nowadays in sort of uh, automated understanding of emotions, and uh, that originally started um, with uh, researchers who were interested in helping autistic children to. Um, understand other people's emotions better mm -hmm. uh, so exactly the, the when when someone is not able to read sort of clues that mm. maybe most people can read that that um, that kind of technology and that kind of uh, all the algorithms and the the research um, there's a lot of activity in that area that seems like a, a clear example where cue reading can be difficult. Yeah, and of course, uh, in in market research, companies have become interested in that because um, uh, they yeah. want to, for example, test the product and instead of uh, and, and you know showing a, a, a video and while monitoring the facial expressions and gestures of the mm. people who are viewing the advertisement and uh, instead of getting people to fill in a questionnaire afterwards and just download um, the thoughts directly yeah. from their brains <laughs> yeah, that's right so uh, um, of course it, often it's the commercial companies that are then putting the, the big money into actually further developing this technology but for example like I said that it originated with the, the um, autism research mm. um, and perhaps the, the more refined uh, products nowadays in the market, they were driven by advertising industry, marketing mm. research industry. So, yeah. So to come back to my original question, um, we, uh, is it Echo, the service that you can get now where you tell your house, turn the lights up or show me Netflix or make me a cup of tea? Um, can you imagine that happening for this this sort of psychophysiological measurement where you have a a computer that will sense, oh, you know, Martin's a bit tired, better make him a coffee? What do you see as the ethical issues with doing that in your own home, if it's just your own home that's reading yeah. your brain? Well, whether, how you would design such a system and would you make it so that it's responsive to what 
you are feeling. Um, for example, if you're tired, um, if you're tired and it's 10 o'clock in the evening, perhaps it would be a good idea that the, the your lights are starting to dim a bit. Yeah. But if you're tired and it's in the middle of the day when actually you shouldn't be going to bed, oh, um, really? then, yeah. <laughs> well... In, in let's imagine that you're I'd working it, from home and uh, I'd love to my house said you just you just need a little nap forty five minutes and you'll be back right. to your performance peak. Yeah, because there's also this concept of um benevolent deception. Oh yeah. So uh the a, a system or lies to you but with a good intention. So um that's to do with manipulating behavior and manipulating how you feel. I mm. probably shouldn't use the word manipulation because that has a bad, bad kind of uh, <laughs> undertones. Right. But, but um, it's not. Tr- so you're saying it's a system that's not truthful yes. in order to achieve a certain behavioural outcome. Yes, that does exactly. Sound like, that does sound like manipulation. <laughs> <laughs> no, so but w- if it's, what would be an example? But the intention, if it's with good intention, that for example, mm. you've it's uh, your house as a system is sensing that you're feeling tired. Yeah. So instead of Dimming the lights, uh, it would brighten them, brighten up. them up and maybe yeah. spread some grapefruit fragrance in the air <laughs> to make yeah, you... the full sensory wake-up wake experience. Wake-up call, yeah, exactly. And and it would be uh, to help you get along productively throughout the day as a good taxpayer. Yeah, well, I suppose there's a good question there of who's... Whose goals are you optimising? Exactly. Is yes. it the individual's? Yes. Or, uh... Yeah. So uh, these are interesting conversations, of course. But I, I guess technically, uh, it it could it, it might be possible already. So would you would you sign up to live in a house like that? If I have an overall control of uh, what what the uh, responses to my moods are, then yes. I don't want anyone else poking around in my <laughs> emotional life. <laughs> Our final guest today is Michael Hebert from the Bartlett Faculty at UCL. Uh, and he's a very good person to ask where you get a box of matches in the futuristic world of streets in the sky. I graduated as a modern historian from Oxford, but wanted to be an architectural journalist. So my bio is essentially one of failing to be a journalist, but becoming an academic. Um, I did a PhD with Peter Hall when he was at Reading. Um, who's a wonderful person who landed up as a colleague much later in life. And then I taught at Oxford Polytechnic, as it then was, and London School of Economics for many years, and University of Manchester, from where I've now retired but joined the Bartlett um, as a professor of town planning. So that's my life. So I'm really interested in the history of thinking about cities and what to do with them, and the collective imagination of urban life and how that has changed over the years and I my main job or one of them is editing the leading journal of that which is called Planning Perspectives which is a Routledge journal which is um, yesterday's tomorrow's as it were Well thank you, so we've definitely come to the right person then to speak about the historical perspective on utopian visions for domestic life but we're particularly interested in speaking about this streets in the sky architectural ideal as a utopian vision of how people could live together in harmony. The architectural history classically goes back to 
Germany in the 1930s, Ludwig Hilbersheimer and his visionary drawings of a city of the future based on slab blocks, which was a, already a sort of modernist trope, but with a, um, a, a deck elevated above the ground level on which motorists would move freely and at high speed, while pedestrians would have would regain the intimacy and comfort of a face-to-face -face environment freed from the danger and pollution of motor traffic. That was the ideal, sketched in a rather scary way by Ludwig Hilbersheimer before he went to Chicago. So they're, they're very geometrical and the pedestrian's deck extends in sort of infinite perspective with regimented slab blocks marching away to the horizon and vehicles scurrying around in the abyss below. Um, I mean, it's a vision of hell. Um, but lots of the younger modernists who were involved in reconstruction after the first, Second World War picked up on this notion. And why they picked up on it, you just have to look at the um, extent to which every sort of planning, however backward-looking it was, um, was dominated by the feeling that motor traffic had to be separated onto its own hierarchical road system. So the street, as traditionally formed, fronted by houses, um, with the dwellings facing onto the shared thoroughfare, that primordial concept of the public realm was to be replaced by one in which vehicles would move separately. And there were two different approaches to this separation. The garden city idea was that you'd separate them horizontally. In other words, you'd have a, um, a dedicated motorway network or vehicular network running through landscape buffers and and then threading through the landscape you would have families going about their business and that's what you, you, you see in all the British New Towns essentially right up to Milton Keynes 1980s um, and the other approach and there was a lot of discussion about the stage at which one would have a, an intensity of urban development which would make this possible would be to create an artificial grounds level and, um, and, and, and the thoroughfare would disappear out of sight uh, down below. So Streets in the Sky really doesn't, I mean actually it's the wrong word because those later there were various formulations like that, particularly the famous Smithson's example. Um, and, and Wilson and Wormersley. In fact, the really original idea was um, vertical segregation. That's the key. What's interesting is that, so in the current discourse, what seems to be happening is a discourse of reclaiming the street yes. for the pedestrian. So maybe this is in line with climate change agenda as well, but to yes. kind of push or move away from motorised traffic and to reclaim the public realm for pedestrians and possibly cyclists. Yes. But what these architects were and planners were suggesting was to have and both situation, 
where you didn't have to choose, you could enjoy the benefits of motorised traffic or, or um, travel and public realm, pedestrian, community realm at the same time or to move easily between them. That, Hannah, was the theory, yes. I mean, it was an impossible theory to, to, to realise because the essence of the street is that space and, I mean, place and mobility are combined within a shared space. And in a way, what we've done in, in reclaiming the street is reclaiming the original idea of the street, which it is both the channel of circulation and a public realm, a shared living space. But no, you're right. In the mid-20th century, looking at the trajectory of vehicle growth, it seemed impossible, it seemed unthinkable that one would stop anywhere short of 100% motorisation and total vehicular mobility. And planners, being conscientious envisagers of the future, were very much at pains to make possible, as you say, both a livable pedestrian environment and an environment in which the man in his motor car, and it was generally male, would be able to drive from his door without stopping to any destination, from any A to any B. And it was a time when uh, people rather forgot that the, uh, that the high-density city of the 19th century was actually created by public transport and shared modes of mobility. Um, and that was a... I mean, there was a famous... Um, uh, article written in 1957 uh, Transport the Maker and Breaker of Cities by the statistician Colin Clark which was a long historical argument saying that railways had created the 19th century city 20th century technology was bound to destroy it so there were very potent voices arguing that um, technological change would necessarily empty the city out. So those designers who looked for the streets in the sky were looking for ways of retaining um, urban intensity and density. And the benefits of that. Exactly. And a lot of them, I mean, it's an absolutely fascinating story, but um, Percy Johnson Marshall is a key person. Um, And uh, William and Eileen Tatton Brown. So these are all sort of young architects to the left, uh, linked to the Architectural Association, working for the London County Council. Well, Tatton Brown was working for Hertfordshire, I think. Um, but who, during the 1940s, were already experimenting with vertical segregation models. And it's interesting you mentioned the left because I was going to ask next. Who was, who who were these being designed for? Were they being designed for the general public, or was there a particular group of people that planners and city councils were particularly interested in designing for? Well, to do this, just go back one stage to to realise this vision. You had to acquire land, and land ownership in cities is intrinsically fragmented. I mean, the the state only owned the road space, didn't own all of that because there were private roads. So what you're talking about is consolidation of the pattern of property on a very large scale. And this 
could only be done under special powers of compulsory purchase and site assembly. It was possible in bombed areas, it was possible in slum clearance areas. So it was possible in central area redevelopment where people were building ring roads and could maybe acquire a little more to either side of the road. So just in certain circumstances um, you could carry out these types of experiments. And the most important ones for streets in the sky, I suppose, are the slum clearance areas, which are designated areas of land where properties' values were written down by by public order, essentially, um, consolidated under a single state ownership and handed over to be redesigned. So the people who were going to be the first beneficiaries of this ideal, of this vertical separation, they would have been people who have been formerly living in these slum areas. Yes, and who hated. I mean, there's a you know this fascinating discussion about this all through the forties as the bombs were falling, houses versus flats. People in Bermondsey had always lived in houses. They had pigs and chickens at the back. They didn't want to live in flats, um, and, uh, and and a few brave medical officers of health made this point and argued against the prevailing architectural orthodoxy, but um, to no avail, um, for all sorts of reasons, partly because the construction industry wanted to move rapidly towards you know, prefabrication and industrialised building. But, I mean, it's worth remembering, of course, vertical segregation could be achieved in two ways. So actually you could have fully pedestrianised streets either by trying to get pedestrian life up or by putting it down into tunnels. And so if you take a global perspective, wearing your global hat, um, th then you, you find much more successful examples of, as it were, pedestrian streets which aren't at grade but which are somewhere else, underground, and particularly in cold climates, so Montreal, Toronto, um, and, and, and the North American cities which went for miles and Japanese cities practically all have amazing underground walkways and the interesting thing about that is that by putting it underground you retain the street in a traditional sense and so you, you have the advantages of pedestrian safety but you still have at street level shop fronts and activity and, and the two coexist in a very interesting way. Whereas if you go for upper-level walkways, and there's many, many examples of them, um, both in British cities and in, um, in and throughout North America, it tends to be at the expense of the street. Um, the Barbican, which is a council estate, they're of a very glamorous kind, uh, but one of the failures of the Barbican was the failure to get the pubs and the kiosks to take off. And why didn't they take off? Because of this conflict I was just referring to, well, this, 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 this intrinsic ambiguity about where you're going to find that bottle of milk or that box of matches. Is it at a, at a corner shop at ground level on the pavement by Barbican Station? Um, or is it in the kiosk on London Wall? And, I and the corner shot won. Yes. <laughs> the kiosk yeah. disappeared. And I was going to speak then about failure, because that's what I 
I imagined that this ideal had kind of gone, uh, that it had failed, and historians have said, okay, that experiment is over. Any any block of flats built in um, after Ronan Point, after we went from point blocks to slab blocks, we tended to have relatively high density horizontal blocks with upper level corridors and those corridors were generally linked together and were justified by a rhetoric of streets in the sky and I mean I've got one in my street for example I mean where I live we have a street in the sky running there's this blind bridge which crosses the road Um, now there are lots of these I still call them experiments because they were essentially failed experiments because most of them were 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 broken up and closed off so this this you know the the GL, GLC estate from the early 1970s the Bali Mow estate in Limehouse which is the one I see every day the upper level street has been closed off because it became a, a, it was linked to crime and insecurity i mean whether it was actual or whether it was perceived, the fact is that the estate regeneration, the thing that people wanted, was to close off the streets. Thank you very much for listening to The Global Lab, your gleaming 21st century home of the future. Uh, thank you to our guests, Peter Childs, Kaiser Pustinen and Michael Hebert. Uh, the show is uh, put together by me, Martin Zoltz-Austwick, uh, with Hannah Sender and Duncan Hay. Uh, if you'd like to find out more about us, we are at The Global Lab on Twitter. And uh, if you go to theglobalab.com, you can hear all of our previous episodes. And we'll be back over the summer with some brand new interviews. Mm-hmm.